0: Make-believe is not pretend We might be ill, but we're on mend. It never starts, it never ends Welcome to Craig and Friends Welcome to Craig and Friends Welcome to Craig and Friends
1: Welcome to the second installment of the Hedwig and the Angry Inch Movie Club featuring none other than Stephen Trask. Thanks for joining.
2: This a movie club,
1: all right, and it's just about uh, all your experiences with Hedwig. I know you had at least three or four days working on the show over the course of the last twenty-five <laughs> years. <laughs>
2: yeah, I would say like three or four days.
1: Time to time, you dip in and be like, "Hey, what are you guys doing? Hey, how about these chords?" and and then just out again. Now I
2: leave. Yeah,
1: I'm yeah, gonna, yeah. So, so, sort of the angel of the project. In many ways, you are the angel, though, uh, because Aren't you the person that thought of using the prostitute uh, character as sort of the, um, what would you say, the uh, structure with which to stretch the work over?
2: Well, yeah, I I was the one who suggested, A, making her into a character, the babysitter prostitute, and B, having her be a drag character for John. Mm-hmm. And C making her into a failed rock star who had dreamed of rock stardom with Tommy. Yeah. Um, but he went on to be famous without her, and she was stuck singing in dives and full of resentment. That that part that part was me. So Yeah,
1: just that little bit. That little piece.
2: Just that little that little tiny nugget of story. Um <laughs> yeah. Which I guess is pretty crucial.
1: So it was like three or four days you came in and you were like, make it a suspended C and also here's some stuff about the character. Yeah. I gotta go. Uh yeah. I'm working on <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, they're doing some reboot of Taxi. I I'm gonna check that out. I- I'll be back. I'll be back. Yeah. Uh, and of course, I mentioned Taxi because of uh, some stuff I read about one of the people involved in Taxi who maybe might have said something not so great about um, homosexuals. Is this correct?
2: Oh, so I will say it was not actually it was not actually Danny DeVito who said negative things about gay people.
1: Good, I'm very it happy was. to hear that.
2: He was a fucking asshole.
0: Oh, okay, okay, and a
2: bully. And um was so resentful of not getting the project, which was probably our mistake. We should have gone with them, because um, I have my own issues with killer films. But um, but it was the person running his record company who was a total like moron. Can I say that? Can I say that this person was a moron?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, is it a libel yeah, thing it, uh, potentially, or well, is I'm that... not
2: mentioning her name, so right? But she was a fool. She was a fool, and she and she said she proposed to my manager that um, that they would get me a celebrity girlfriend to help make me into like to 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 really commodify me and make me into a celebrity, and they could just sort of bury my gay past and I'm like, but I've already won a glad award, and I have a husband <laughs> like like I like the whole thing just made no sense whatsoever, like it, the idea it's like like somehow that would be good for the project if I went into the closet
1: right that would sell the project this project that was really about a boy girl love story very traditional,
2: very traditional, but yeah. she actually thought she actually thought that proposing this she was selling she thought that was actually selling the company
1: sure in the, in and the way the, that... the
2: kinds the kinds of services they could provide for me and my career development um, by uh, by getting me a celebrity girlfriend
1: so even to though go down, to go
2: to like red carpets with and like that sort of thing
1: so even though some people decry the end of the classic, label phase of rock and roll pop music whatever there's a lot of this nonsense that people generally don't have to deal with anymore although maybe they do depending on whatever structures are in place now but there was a lot more of that kind of thing right if you were signed to a label and suddenly they were like oh yeah well you know this is who's going to be running the show for you you kind of had to do the stuff that they wanted or yeah you fell out of favor with the label
2: right yeah you did you fell out of favor and, and, and like, I remember, so, we, you know, we, we, we made the record with Atlantic and we made the movie with Killer. Bad experiences all around for me. And, um, but I remember that when we made the record with Atlantic up until we signed the deal memo, it was all, we are here to enable your vision to see that you get to make your project. And then the day the, the deal was signed they were like, so we were having a meeting and we were going through all the bits of dialogue that the different executives wanted to put on the album between songs. Yeah, And I said, oh, but we actually talked about how this was more of like our approach to this was to, be, to make the concept album that, that Hedwig would make and that it wasn't really going to be um it wasn't really going to contain dialogue from the show that's making it more of like um uh like a souvenir from the show
0: yeah right exactly
2: uh, uh, um and her answer to me was well making a record is a collaborative project this is all of our record now
1: oh my god and
2: it was literally like the next day
1: that's horrifying
2: like that that kind yeah. of they, like you know um just so many awful, awful, awful people. <laughs> uh, there were, there were wonderful people at Danny's company. Yeah. Uh, or a couple of wonderful people at Danny's company. Um, And there were some really good people at Atlantic. Um, But.
1: Not enough crap.
2: corporate. Yeah. Not, not enough. The, the corporate culture at Atlantic was bad. Our A&R person was like atrocious and Danny DeVito was a is is a bully I mean like the last exchange I had with him was I went like this but we we I I I I wrote a I wrote a film score for a a movie that he produced actually with Killer Films hmm. and um a camp and I went to the party the you know the the premiere and I saw him from across the auditorium and I was like you know, maybe, maybe, maybe we can bury the hatchet. And I waved to him and he went, wow. And I was like, eh, that's who that guy is.
1: That's wild. Uh, because it, it is also counter to the public image of the, uh, irascible, wacky, but ultimately uh good natured guy,
2: the lovable family guy with the kids and the, and the, and the lovely wife and,
1: And the outre sense of humor that allows him to uh, be part of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. So uh, people are complex, we're learning. Uh, Now, the history of this would be that Danny DeVito's company would they be the first company that had a pretty uh, significant interest in the play?
2: No, there were a few. Like we would go, we would we shopped around to a lot of people and it came down. And it came down to them because they actually offered a really good deal through New Line Cinema, um, um, and we had a lot of connections to New Line, which is not why we, you know, why we went with them. Um, but you know, um, uh, we were um, we we had a lot of personal connections, um, including but not limited to, my uncle who was the president
1: of distribution and
2: marketing. Um, uh, he did not get along with Bob Shea, so it almost didn't matter. But um,
1: so wait, can I ask but, how long did he, or was it not how long did he last? How long was his tenure at uh, New Line? If he didn't uh, get along with Bob Shea, who I don't know much about, but Bob Shea is New Line, therefore, or at least was, so I'm curious.
2: Um, mid to late '80s. So like 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 he he um New Line when he joined, didn't have a national distribution company. I see. Okay. And in order to distribute, I think it was nightmare on Elm street two. Mm-hmm. They actually needed a genuine national distribution company with field offices and everything. And so whenever that movie came in, came out, my uncle was brought in and basically set up new line distribution as a national distribution company. Gotcha. So, um, so whatever year that was, he was with them till then. From then until um, just before we started shooting the film.
1: Oh, okay. Oh, it's too bad he wasn't there um, till after yeah. you started shooting.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, and so, but it was going down this road with DeVito's company, and I, I thought they would have done a great job with the picture, um, but I was getting so many mixed messages on the record like you'll that you're gonna be working with this person no don't worry you won't be working with that person you'll be working with this person no don't worry i'll be the one in charge i had like four different executives one from our uh, mca records and three from killer calling up me me personally to tell me they looked forward to working with me one-on-one to really make this happen and like clear and 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 some of them would actually cite the other person saying don't worry." you will not be working with that person this is my record and then the other person would say no this is my record and they were like fighting and i was like i can't this i'm a nobody and i've never made a, a record before and I, and they're already like fighting openly like yeah. to me it just seemed like ridiculous so um one day i um one day i called mike deluca up at home He who used to be their head of production. I got his number. I called him up at home and I said, hey, I know that you've given us, you've offered us this great deal with Jersey Pictures producing. But if we did it with killer films, could we get the same deal? And he said, sure, I don't care who produces it. And I've always wanted to work with killer anyway. So... I said, great. So I said, well, we'll get all the same deals. She said, absolutely same deal. And so then I called up a friend that I knew had Christine Vachon's phone number, and I called her up at home on a Sunday, and she said, you know, I don't usually like to take business calls on a Sunday. And I just said, listen, Christine, if I could get you Hedwig and the Angry Inch with a deal already written, and these are the deal points, and Mike DeLuca's already behind it, do you want this movie? I can get it to you first thing tomorrow morning. Mm -hmm. And she said, okay. Yeah. And so by the next morning, it had gone to them. Just, it just went like that.
1: Wow. And so I did,
2: it was very, it was very like, like, um, uh, Mowgli of me.
1: Very Mowgli of you, but also very, you know, punk rock in a way, right? Still a, a, yeah. a, a, adhering to those ethos because people can get subsumed in the, nonsense that goes on with this stuff especially it's like wow it's our movie i guess sometimes people think well i should just be careful and i shouldn't stick my nose into this because you know we got a solid thing here we got a sure deal
2: yeah but i was just like i didn't pee in anybody's desk (laughs) right but um but i i you know i i made a flurry of phone calls and i called and and i did Talked about Mike DeLuca and Christine Bashan at their homes.
1: Now, who delivered Sunday. who delivered the news to Jersey Films? You know,
2: I don't care. Like I like, it wasn't me. Mm-hmm. I mean, Danny was so good at like wooing. Like I remember when we were on the David Letterman show. The next day, um, I got a phone call from a limousine. Saying, "Will you be home? I'm coming to your house." And like an hour and a half later, um, uh, a limousine pulled up, and it was a stretch limousine.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: And in the in the back seat, there was no passenger. There was simply a bottle of Cristal on ice and a chilled tin of Beluga caviar.
1: Wow. He's a smoothie, <laughs> you know. But, he's he's done know. this sort of thing before. I mean he he's no yeah. slouch uh, or no uh, ingenue to producing films. Even I mean back then, even
2: yeah. And so, but um, and and he had somebody, Stacy Sure, working with him who was just like brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, like the bullying and the we're going to find you a girlfriend and the sort of incompetence of the music person and the bickering between MCA, who was their distribution company and, and their music person was just like, it just, it was causing me so much anxiety.
1: I can imagine. Uh, I, I couldn't imagine. When you say bullying, you can, you, uh, what, yeah. what would that entail?
2: Um, uh. So, so one day I was, so I was at Jersey. Pictures. Yeah. And I had to go to the bathroom and I'm standing at the urinal and then DeVito comes in next to me. And I got to think of a different way of saying this person's name. Um, uh
1: Mr. Zito. We'll say Mr. Zito.
2: No, Rosalita Renata. Of course. And he's like, he's like, and he just looks up at me. He's paying. We're right next to each other. And he goes, he goes, let me tell you something. This is a family company and Rosalita is like my sister. So if you don't want to make a record with my sister, you're insulting my family and me. Wow. You understand what I'm saying to you? That's an insult to me and my family. And then he zipped up and walked out,
1: and didn't even wash his hands because you know you got to make a strong exit when you do a little speech like that.
2: Yeah. So it was just like, and I and I think it was literally after that that she no no it was on the way to that meeting that she had proposed that I that she get me a girlfriend. I see. Not to me, but to my manager. So it was just like shit like that. You're just like mm-hmm. what the hell is that?
0: The
1: project then went to Atlantic, which was then independent of Jersey.
2: So Jersey Films had a deal with MCA Records, which was part of the Universal Music Group. They they had this guy, Doug something. Doug
1: Doug Morris? Of,
2: yeah. Very yeah. Doug Morris came and had a big meeting with us. He was a little mobby. It felt, <laughs> it felt, it felt like being in a mob movie.
1: Uh-huh.
2: Um, but you couldn't like we tried, actually. We were like, can we make the movie with you, but the record with Atlantic Records? Because, of course, Atlantic didn't care. Atlantic didn't, didn't only release soundtracks of movies in the Warner, in the, you know, Warner electra atlantic um, sphere. Right. They would, they would do a soundtrack for anybody, right? Yeah. So, or Cast Album Friends. So, so that was not that was not a thing. It was um so the soundtrack. Oh, the soundtrack came out on a different label with an Atlantic subsidiary. It was that the so Atlantic had done the had done the original cast recording. Yeah. And no wait. I'm trying to think. This is all very confusing to me. So okay, so this was to make the cast album. Jersey wanted to buy the rights to the cast album and the rights to the picture. Okay. In one thing Atlantic was just going to put up the cast recording. I see. They also distributed on behalf of a different record label, an independent record label, the soundtrack to the movie. This was all about the cast recording and they didn't like, they didn't care. So we tried to get Jersey to say, Hey, we'll make the movie but you can make a separate deal for the for the cast album and they and they and their position was it's all or nothing
1: well so this would put the whole negotiation thing back to when the cast album was put out so the discussions for the film were already being had when the cast album was done which is about what two years before say camera started rolling roughly
2: yeah, about two years. So we started. So we started. You know, we started taking meetings with film companies and with record companies over the summer of 1998 when we were like in the first swing of things. Like we're in the when when John and Cheater and Miriam and I were, you know, the whole original cast was on that stage.
1: And and, we, and when the, the the sort of flush of excitement was going through the city with Lou Reed showing up, David Bowie showing up et cetera. Yeah. So now what's the way to manage excitement at this point? Because clearly you have a hot property on your hands and it's not just a hot property. It's something that you and John have developed over a period of years. It's dear to your heart, but then you're now meeting with a bunch of different companies. Where's your head at?
2: Oh, I was a mess. You know, you go perform every night, and that's exhausting. And then you take these meetings in the daytime, and I, you know, I I, I think I was emotionally and like uh, psychologically a mess going in to the project for, for a lot for a lot of reasons. No, no, going into the Grand Street Theater. I see. When we finally finished the show and um and 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 started performing for audiences there i was like a wreck i think i like for the first three weeks i cried every night when we performed the night radio
1: wow now could you attribute that to anything specifically or would it be a confluence of factors
2: it was a confluence of factors but that was a very emotional song for me to write and um and it came from a very particular uh um you know it was just it's a very personal song for me. And um and you know, because it deals with like it deals both with like the power of music and the importance of music. Um, um and it opens with this image that nobody gets. So I don't know why nobody gets it. Cause it seems really clear to me, but like, you know, those rainstorms in New York where like, it's like five o'clock and it's really hot. And all of a sudden, like the rain just starts pouring down and everything is just like, you're running and your umbrellas are breaking because the rain is coming down so hard. And then like 10 minutes later, the sun is out and the rain dries up. And it was like, And and everyone just goes back to you know walking around and doing their shit. Yeah. And and I was thinking about like that and the way like when a song comes on that like you're you're listening to music and a song comes on that hits you so hard you're just like oh my god then the song is over but like while it's playing it's just like it is it is your world it is your universe it changes how everything feels right and then three three and a half minutes later gone and um and so that was like the opening image and then like you know and then it kind of like for me it ended with this idea of different people have this really in my mind different people that have this relationship to music that's that important in their lives either as as creative people or that uh, uh, like creating music or other people that create stuff who for whom it's that important who either find a way to make a living at it or who don't but somehow continue to do it anyway mm-hmm. and just keep making their art or keep having that uh, you know despite not having the world say good job and um or y- you know um people who maybe they're not artists but they live that rock and roll lifestyle for like you know like You know, they're in love with the Janie Jones world and they just they just want it. Right. And they just like like, and they live that life till till they just can't go into a club anymore. Like they're just a part of it. And and I was trying to figure out, you know, going into that show, I was trying to figure out, like, where am I going to be in this? Because if this show doesn't end up happening. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life and what role music would have in my life.
0: And when you and say
1: you didn't uh, know if the show was going to happen, and I, this might be something that's common knowledge that I'm forgetting, but is this when moving to the Jane Street Theater? You mean like this might not go?
2: It was actually before that we had a we had a deal at the Cherry Lane Theater to go the previous summer or previous fall, and over the summer in August, I mean, like, oh, the last minute it just fell through. I mean, Fell Through is probably like a, a funny way to put it, the, the, the Cherry Lane Theater. One of our producers was a crook, one of our producers of the of the Jane Street show is a crook. And she um, 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 also worked for the Cherry Lane Theater and um, they didn't know how to get rid of her. And so they more or less closed the theater and reformed as a slightly different corporation a, a, a short time later, but without her, <laughs> like wow. like they couldn't, they couldn't figure out how to get out of her contract. So they just went out of business for a period of time. <laughs> and then
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's remarkable. <laughs> Cause
2: she's, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah. she's the sort of person that would make you do such things. Some and, people
1: um, inspire you in ways you'd never expect.
2: She, she was involved later in a weird theater crime where she, um, she was actually stealing two shows at the same time. So, so her rights, the, the rights of the, this is just sort of funny and I, you can use this or not. No, this is all sort very, of funny very in the interesting. way, in the way that theater works, but, but, um, uh, John and I were waiting, like the, the James Street theater producers were no longer really exploiting the property. But this one producer really wanted to continue to do it because basically she had nothing else, right? Gotcha. And um, and um, and she tried to have other things, and she sold herself as, oh, well, I did have it. Yeah. Um, but she really, you know, she'd lost the trust of basically everybody. Mm-hmm. And after her rights had expired, she continued to insist that they hadn't expired and that she was going to put a production up in Chicago well past the date, that putting up a production in Chicago, it had to be like a proper, like, run in Chicago. It couldn't just be like, "Hey, I did a reading," but it had to be like, it had to be like a fully designed production in a in a theater with a, with an open ended run.
1: Sure, and also at that point, right? You still, and I think you still do. You had sort of authorization over who can do it, when they can do it, et etc.
0: Yeah,
2: but but that didn't really come into play because she did what they call so so we kept on telling her you don't have the rights you don't have the rights you don't have the rights, and she went to go do it anyway and she went to hire all these musicians who performed at the James Street and I remember John and I actually wrote to everybody and just said, hey look we are not behind this production we can't stop you from going and making a living but you need to know that this production is being produced against our rights and against our will and, and people but you are free to do this because. You need to make a living. Yeah. Of course, she didn't end up paying any of them. Oh, and
0: great. she
2: did what they call a lights up, lights down production, where you basically throw everyone on the stage, you put the stage lights on, you do the show, stage lights off, done. And she tried to say that was her thing. Mm-hmm. She funded it. She funded it by taking the money from um, I the money. From um, a production of a show, by by a production of a show written by Rob Reiner, Rob Reiner's mother, Carl Reiner's wife, um, Estelle, is
1: it? That sounds right. Yeah. The woman in um, When Harry Met Sally, uh, who says, I'll have what she's having.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. She wrote a play. This producer was going to produce that play. She raised money for that play. She spent that money on the lights up, lights down production of Hedwig. Wow. Which went nowhere, lost it all. The other production had to close before ever opening. Yeah. And then to avoid jail time, she reached an agreement with Elliot Spitzer, who was at the time law and order um, (laughs) that, that, she was banned for life from producing theater or raising money for the production of theater in the state of New York. Wow. So that was the end result.
1: Yeah. So that must have been uh rather disturbing as well because also this is your baby and you're like, oh my god, a shoddy version of this is going out. And what's going on? Yeah, happen? it was more
2: like like John and I kind of had an idea of what we wanted to do and we got the rights back and we were just kind of like When will this happen? When will this happen?
1: What was the span of time, roughly, between considering doing Jane Street and maybe the Cherry Lane Theater, and when the Jane Street actually happened?
2: We were aiming toward the Cherry Lane. It was probably supposed to start rehearsals in September. We found out in August it wasn't going to happen. So it was just like really like, oh, everything's kind of pinned on this. My deal, my band also had a, a speculative record deal with a major label, and they they turned they had an option deal and they turned us down. And um, this all happened like in a five day period. But in any case, I was just like, "What's what the fuck is going to happen in my life? The play is dead, that my band is dead, all of this is dead." So I gave myself, and, and and Michael started teaching at Yale that year, and I said. Well, if at the end of his second semester, something isn't happening with one of these two projects, I'm out. So for me, like I was really on like a timeline. Am I going to be, uh, am I going to be like a professional musician and writer for the rest of my life, or am I actually going to do something else?
1: especially tough decision as well because not just because of the quality of the material that you make and always make but that you were this close legitimately this close to it all happening so i'm guessing this is what informed the mental state
2: yeah and so then we and then we like you know we did we went on this like search for a theater that would have us nobody would have us. And so our producer slash director, Peter Askin ended up building the Jane street theater in this derelict ballroom at the hotel Riverview. And that's where we ran, but we didn't, that was pretty late in the in the fall that, that we decided that we were going to be going there. And I still hadn't written the suite of songs for the end of the show. Just as we were getting ready to go into the theater for tech, you know, we, and we ended the show with, with, um, Joe Brooks, as you light up my life, but in German.
1: And he opposed to that because he's such a clean
0: living guy.
2: He, in, he's one of those outstanding <laughs> you know, race at rapists.
0: Yeah, and, exactly. Um,
1: Anyone not knowing what we're talking about, go look it up and have a really horrifying afternoon.
2: I think I think, I think to call him a rapist is inappropriate. He was really a serial rapist.
1: Yes, I think so. I think you're underplaying it a little bit.
2: So, but in any case. Um, he said, no, but we were like, we were loading in the next week.
0: Right, right.
2: Like, it was not like, it wasn't like three weeks ahead of whatever. It was like, we we're just wrapping shit up and getting ready to go in. And so I had to kind of like, in addition to like, just artistically reaching inside, I had to reach inside emotionally. And I didn't like, I didn't quite have time to process all of, like, first of all, just doing that sort of thing is just a very emotional thing thing but i didn't have time to process what it all meant to me
0: right so
2: which i did on stage every night so then we play it and i was just like i'm playing it and i'm just crying my eyes out every night so i was just a you know i was a wreck i was a wreck um and um so but that's all behind me now
1: it's all behind you, but it's very interesting, I think, for everyone to hear, particularly those of us like myself, who react almost exactly the same way, not as you, but the same way I did the first time I heard Midnight Radio. Every time I see it, the most recent time was at the New Beverly. I almost know that when it comes up to the Misfits and the Losers section of the song, it's you know. It's uh to you. what's that? It's talking to you. Yeah. And it's it's uh waterfalls. You know what I mean? Like, it's uh, it's the kind of thing where, you know, sometimes you can see a movie too many times. Not that that's happened with uh, Hedvig, But, you know, and you can get sort of inured to certain passages or certain emotional things. No matter what's going on, midnight radio, it's going to get me. Uh, at the origin love shows as well, I was interested to see where I would cry. I knew I would cry. But uh, because it wasn't the show, you know, the show show and also obviously wasn't the film i was wondering when that would happen i can't remember the other songs that did it to me but definitely midnight radio will get me every time so it makes sense that that's where it was born from
2: so and there were like so many of my friends that in my mind like were the strange rock and rollers and the misfits and the losers who i thought like like i was imagined like you because know, the song starts really intimate, and it ends up switching into this kind of oratory style, and um, and singing, not even to the people in the audience, but to sing singing to people like across the night and across the city. And for me, it was like it's, it was it's like almost like radio, like beaming to people's houses and beaming to, and I had a lot of friends in mind were just day in day out year in year out hanging in there and making their stuff yeah and you know not ever, and not everybody becomes a huge celebrity and not everyone even necessarily makes a living at it but they're there making their art and being a and not just being a not just making their art but being a part of a culture and holding on to that culture and, and and without them then you don't have that culture.
1: And then without and without the culture they don't have them. So that's that amazing thing that is rarely encapsulated in a song, but you did extravagantly well in that song because also Midnight Radio it has that thing about it too where it is this foreign transmission, right, coming but you do relate to it, and it's the same way, not exactly maybe per person, but other people are relating to it that you can't see elsewhere. And so there is a unity even amongst the people who are feeling isolated. You, you don't feel so isolated when you hear that song or Transformer for the first time or whatever. So it's a really beautiful thing that you were able to summarize
2: so that's why. So and so, I cried every night. When we yeah. played it. Well, that
1: makes sense. And also, it's it, it, fascinatingly, in, in kind of a meta way, it encapsulates what Hedvig does for everyone. Do you know what I mean? Because you, you've, you and John made a piece that does that in spades for millions of people, and and continues to have that effect on people who were even born when it came out on DVD.
0: Hmm.
2: Yeah, and you know, and 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 I'd like it to continue to create community because sometimes I worry about like over kind of like balkanization, like where 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 uh, identities are becoming extremely specific and being used as ways of dividing us. Mm-hmm. And I feel sure. like, like, I don't know, like, I feel like, like there's a lot of us that need to hold together in a community and we're not all exactly the same, but right. you know, and so, and so there can be strains there, but like, uh, I don't know. I like, you know what I said, we did a, like a 20th anniversary thing for the academy i guess and and i was asked like if hedwig had a if if hedwig had like a message to to send about today's culture and 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 it was just, and it was something i don't remember exactly what it was but i just remember it was like we got too many walls and not enough bridges and mm-hmm. and um and i and i and i still like that that like hold on to each other
1: thing that uh, i think that message won't be diluted by whatever forces are in the world because i think the, the only people that hear hear that song the ones who need to hear it always will right you know right. And, and and if anything the proliferation of communication or social media, et cetera, means that I think for a show that was able to be spread amongst the cult that spanned the world before it was even a film, uh, it only means that people have a readier access to it. And so those that need that get it and see it uh, more often.
2: I I think so too. So like, you know, we just need more people to
1: see it. I mean, but that'll continue to happen.
2: We haven't reached our peak yet. Right. You know, like, like I think we're still going.
1: Well, you, you definitely are, but I mean, in, in a way, and I know that Rocky Horror comparisons aren't entirely fair because of uh, the, the radical difference in the subject matter, the text, the everything. But in terms of the audience effect, I think it's an apt corollary in that that just continues to grow. And then even in the last, what, five years, with uh, songs from your piece being featured on shows that I can't remember the name of right now, uh, but... Uh, and,
2: and Riverdale.
1: What was the first one?
2: Sex Education. Riverdale an a Patrick episode.
1: Yeah, but that's pretty significant, though, because that's like, remember when fame uh, in the movie, they're like, oh, they're going to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. It, it becomes yeah. a thing, just like it's a thing you do or it's a thing that people do. So that's uh, an example or an indication that that's just going to keep going and going and going and going that way. Yeah. Now, uh, a few people have said something to me when I said, oh, the only thing I have an issue with with Stephen Trask is that I wish he put out more rock records, like, you know, many, many rock records. Like, I wish I had a 10-album set of Stephen Trask records. Now, I know you've done... Tons of scores, right? And I love your scores, but I love your song so much that I, you know, selfishly want that. And I'm sure that there's reasons for that. The question that was put to me that I hadn't thought of, so I wanted to bring along to you, is that well, you know, they they sort of equated it to the Orson Welles Citizen Kane thing. Once you've done something like Hedvig and the Angry Inch, how do you then just go and make a a rock record?
2: Well. I'm not going to grandize it in the way that I would compare it to Citizen Kane. However, there is a bit of that there. It's like, really, I got to follow this up, like, (laughs) and like, and like, everything is decontextualized, and and you know, so so part of it for me was like, if I can do film scores. And I can kind of like express myself and stay away from that. And then there was this side of me that was also writing songs for musicals. And for whatever reason, the first couple of musicals that I attached myself to and, and, and worked on, one of them, I had a falling out with the book writer who owned the property. And I was loving the stuff I was writing. Really, really loving the stuff that I was writing, and the other one. So that, that was was and Michelle's high school reunion, the musical, and the other one was uh, Clueless, the musical. And I was working on that with Peter Yanowitz, who with whom I wrote "This Ain't No Disco," and we worked on it for a long time, and we kept kept getting teamed up with. Book writers who just weren't quite right for it. Mm-hmm. And, like, when you know, when you're writing songs for a show, you kind of write the songs the book writers tell you to write, if that makes sense. So, you're sort of like you're in that world, and then that thing gets cut, and then you have this song that is like, oh, that works real. That's a great song, but like it's so specific to the scene. Like you'd have to fundamentally rewrite it to make it work. Yeah. Otherwise. And in that case, it's a co-write. So what do you do with that? And like, and, um, and eventually on that, like it went long enough that, um, you know, the people that had licensed it had stopped paying their licensing fees and they were thinking, yeah, if something happens, we kept trying to get it going. And then, almost having given up on it. And then one day, um, Miley Cyrus goes into the office of the person that had licensed it with the mom, And he played her the score. And she was like, I love this. I want to play share. Oh, wow. Great. And he called me up and told me that she was there in the office and they want her to play share in the Broadway version of clueless. What do I think of that? And I was like, yeah. That's great. But the rights had expired and Amy Heckerling took the rights back
0: and wanted we'll, to
2: we'll take a different approach.
0: Oh, that's such a shame.
2: So, it was like we literally like had this spot and and by that time we had written like 35 songs and demoed like 35 songs because it, different book writers and people keep rewriting it and they're like can you give us a song that does that and can you give us a song and you're just like hammering out songs none of them you'd want to hear because they're like here's a song from the third draft of the second act of clueless when so-and-so was writing the book like who wants to hear that song like it's there's, it's got no real point to it and 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 because all of those exist like they were never refined because sure. we never started re- going into rehearsals where you're, like, you're rewriting and changing all this stuff. So they all exist in kind of first draft versions. So that was a lot of songwriting spent doing that.
1: Sure. Um, and then a lot of songwriting that then is not in the tank or time-wise even for you to be making a pop album or a rock album or something like that. Cool.
2: So you know, and part of it is my is my inherent laziness. <laughs> but like you know, like I'll get back from working on a, like two films in a row out of town, and 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 you know, I kind of I, I, I don't want to then just go sit in my studio and record that album, I, and and I I want to be home with well, my dog and my husband. And, well, which
1: makes sense, though. So for folks who don't understand or know or have any idea really about the time. Commitment it takes to score a film. Could you could give a little broad stroke look at that?
2: Yeah, you know, usually like you like, you know, the ideal is you get hired twelve weeks before a film scores, and so the ideal is that they give you three months. Sometimes they they give you less. Sometimes they give you more. More than fifty percent of the time, for whatever reason very often it's we're going to go reshoot some scenes now what started off as a three-month project turns into a six-month project or an eight-month project because we're going to reshoot 20 minutes of this movie reorganize the whole thing and send you a new cut with an entirely different feel to it right. so you might have to throw out half the stuff you were working on and like rethink the whole thing and then So like, and you can't take a job in the middle.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah.
2: Like they're waiting. Yeah. So like, you know, you're just sort of tolling the, your time. And so it's not like, it's not like, oh, I'm wasting my time as an artist. It's more like, I'm not, I don't want to waste my time as a human being. I would like to go and see people that I love or spend time Other things that I like doing as a person.
1: Yeah, because there's such a heavy time commitment to this thing that, again, like you said, with something like the endless rewriting of Clueless, can get wearing because you're like, oh, this is 10 steps removed from the 13 steps removed thing that we then had to make some kind of song that we ostensibly care about. Where are we? What are we even doing anymore? And I imagine that sort of beats it out of you a little bit, unlike the process of creating Hedvig, which was a joint creation. So something changes in the book and something changes in the song, but you're doing it as part of both processes.
2: And now I have a propensity to lose my voice. So like that makes it difficult. But, uh, you know, um, I don't know. Getting kind of old. So but at some point I should probably do it.
1: Yeah, I'm sure you have little scra- scraps fragments around of stuff, right? I
0: don't want
2: to finished stuff, but it's, you know, um, and, and there are songs from musicals that, like, with a few changes, I can see, you know, oh, that'll stand alone.
1: Um, and also, by the way, you know, even if you didn't, I mean, obviously, personally, I would like to hear much, much more from you in the pop song uh, vein, because you have a, an amazing knack for using... If not obscure chords, very difficult chords or uncommon chords in a way that no one would know, no one would hear it the song on first blush and go, "Hey, there's a whole bunch of weird chords in there." but if you sit down and pick it out on the guitar or try to, you go, "Uh, this guy made a classic song that you could kind of play to anyone, and yet it's using the most unlikely building materials." More chords than T-Rex, I'll put it that way. Yeah, you know, the Beatles did it. The changes and things that go on in like uh, Tear Me Down, for instance. Now, Tear Me Down, that's a very complex song, right? Let me see if this this
2: guitar is in tune. Um, You know, like, it more or less has... I I don't know if this is in tune. If it's not, I'll stop playing. (laughs) That's more or less the changes, right? But it's kind of, it's kind of like the extensions over it and the, like the the extensions over, over all of that kind of movement Kind of add, I don't know richness to it, so so it keeps it from just feeling like bar chords necessarily.
1: Sure, okay, and it's is this a song that's also capoed?
2: Um, depends.
1: And so, for those listening not familiar, a capo is that little clamp thing you often see Bob Dylan with uh, that will change the. Does it change the key of the guitar? Is that what it does? So it's
2: like, it's sort of like this is the nut, right, and 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 all the strings are fretted across the nut, yeah. And the length of the string from the nut from the nut to the bridge is here. From the nut to the bridge mm-hmm. is what determines the um is what determines the 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 the, the note. Sure. Frequency. So, so the full length of each string is because of the length, the the way it's tuned and the length of this. Sure. So, but if you go up one fret, two frets, three frets, four frets, you're shortening the string and therefore um, you, the, the, the frequency of vibrations goes up and the note is, is, is a higher note. So a capo is essentially a way of clamping down. It's, it's a clamp that more or less is the equivalent of moving the nuts. Sure. Ear to ear. And so the song is in C,
0: mm-hmm.
2: which is a piano key. And, um, which is trickier for
1: guitar players, right? Piano keys,
2: piano keys, especially like C is a tricky key. And, and it's one thing if you're writing in in a much higher, it it go so. C is is a tricky one, but if it, it just so happens, like if you're finding, if you're in those keys that cause you to have to go up too high with the capo. You can get a very like bright, not very rockin' sound.
1: More like an Indigo just, Girls kind of sound for just an easy reference.
2: Sure, and and in fact, like like. Um, or Bob. Yeah, Dillon. or and,
1: Bob Dylan on some stuff. Some stuff is like the capo is like halfway up the fretboard. It
2: can be a folk. It can be a folkier sound, but you can actually get yourself to be able to play in the key of C. Really easily, just by putting a a capo on the first fret. Okay. Because it moves the it moves the guitar into um, the key of F. Okay. And so, and so, as I mentioned earlier, the the chords are C, F, B flat. So you actually end up you act so you end up. Um. With um, being able to play this instead of this, so that instead of you get you from a fingering perspective so it's just. It's just easier, and then this string, you know, like, um, and you can actually like you can you can actually play instead of like threading the whole B out. You can play it like this, and let that B string ring out. Okay. You know, so like all of a sudden you're like it, it, it puts you in this very rock and roll territory that 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 some players like to do because it allows them just to do things that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do and have open strings you wouldn't otherwise be able to have. Um, so, yeah, it doesn't have to be played with the capo.
1: And then so it, it's your combination of all your experiences, too, of playing in punk bands, plus your extensive knowledge of chord structure and music theory combined together.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. Like a lot of it come from like writing things on the piano and then learning them on the guitar. Sure. Like a, a guitar technique that's oriented around, around trying to do on guitar what I played on the piano.
1: Kind of like how Chuck Berry had to do what Johnny Johnson, the piano player, was doing.
2: Right. No. <laughs> in, in some ways, like, I'm not saying that I, this is nothing against Johnny Johnson, who I fucking adore, but I think Chuck Berry is very often about like, hey, where's my fucking credit? Some of that was just his way of saying, hey, give some credit to this guy. He's fucking amazing. Yeah. and And I won't necessarily say... Oh, he, he was just copying Johnny Johnson and oh, it's in piano key, whatever. I don't think it was just him ripping off Johnny Johnson. I think they had a, I think they had a nice deal about it. it's Johnny Johnson's keys or whatever. But, um, but I, I, I think that was, I think that was Chuck Berry being magnanimous.
1: Now, in terms of a uh, chordal complexity. What would you say is the most quote-unquote difficult song in the film?
2: Difficult? Oh, absolutely.
1: Oh, and by the way, before you do that, if you have your iPhone handy, if you have your iPhone handy, because sometimes the guitar is cutting in and out, if you could just put it on voice record for me, so I can take the, the rest of the audio from this and then layer that in just in case we have dropouts.
2: By the way, I haven't done this in... Like, I haven't played this in so fucking long. I don't actually remember it all. So we're... Is that it? Oh, that's it. fine, fine. It's all like really <coughs> tricky stuff.
1: There's a couple of chords there, right? Who that seem almost like the same chord that you played before, but there's one note different, and so forth. I know this in music theory terms. They bounce me out of the Berkeley classroom right now for that.
0: But
2: all right, and some of them are partials. Like this isn't really a chord. It's it's B F B B F A.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So it implies. Uh, B minor, seven with a flat five. Yeah. But it does not have that on, does not have that D. It has the open D. And then going down the half step from major, F major to E major. And then this is actually like Going from E major to B flat major is just weird. It's a weird thing to do.
0: (laughs) Yeah, very uncommon. That's an A
2: major chord with a flat nine.
1: Okay. Yeah, an A major we hear all the time, but we rarely ever hear it with that. And you very often hear A major seven with a flat nine.
2: But it's not that, it's this. And that's just a regular old G7. Yeah. But the next time around when it comes to the to this and then back to that beginning thing, and then this. And then this is just a partial. It's just it's just um, A flat D A flat, and you can throw a D on if you want, but it feels superfluous. But it's just the tritone. Right. Um, and then and oh, and then this goes from this. Which is also just weird, it's just like the F, but with an E on the bottom and an open B and an open E at the top. So it just becomes, you know, it's a bit of nonsense.
1: then the lyric and is so specific and the melody is threaded through in such a way that I have to say it's masterfully done because you can sing along with that song, get the song, understand it.
2: And never know that that's what's going on. Yeah. You know, and a lot of it, like, so a lot of it comes from Cole Porter and a lot of it comes from John Lennon. Like... Sexy Sadie does a lot of... Like, Sexy Sadie does not do those weird diminished things, but it does do that, like... Uh, So... so that's the same chord move when sexy in sexy Sadie when it goes um, sub so one it does that same kind of so
0: you made a fool of everyone.
2: so the first time it does the proper Five, like, you know, 5-1 kind of. So that kind of thing is sort of nor- like it's a normal thing to do. Yeah. And then goes into the 4-5-1 turnaround. I mean, 4-5-1 turnaround. But then this time, the next time, it leaves out the B minor. So it's like... out the V minor. you made a fool of
0: everyone
2: so so like it you you get that movement a tritone movement of a major chord moving a tritone and having it be a major chord it's just there's no real there's no theoretical relationship between these two chords there's no you can't fall back on and say, oh, that's a Neapolitan second or whatever. Like, it's just not a... Th- it's not a... Yeah,
1: I hear that in every it's, song.
2: It's not a thing. It's not a thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, right, right. And I remember once you telling me about Mind Games having some vague relation to some chord.
2: Oh, yeah, the the, the trick in Mind Games. Mind games. So it's just this constant going down. And the last chord, My. It's like a D chord of the C on the bottom. And it makes you feel, and it makes you feel like, and, the, and then it's totally natural to go from that D to the C. Except the next time... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> It goes to the C, so this is what's weird. Because like, I don't know how you know from listening to his voice that it's changing key, because it goes from the D. Yes, is the answer. But it uses it when it goes to the C. All of a sudden, the C goes from being the one chord to being the four chord. And you know that I don't know. I don't know where it goes from there.
1: No, no, that's okay. I just remember. I remember you showing me a little bit of that once, and I was like, "Wow, okay." Because you know, I know the song really well, but Ooh. had no idea how it was constructed.
2: You, you gotta let it. got let it gotta let it grow so keep playing all night. so then it uses the D chord to then go back to C being the center and the other time it uses the D chord to have the G become the center and the first chord of the chorus and the first chord of the verse is a C following a D and yet somehow you know when you're in the chorus, that you're in a different key because he does something with his voice to let you know, and I don't even know what his trick is there. Yeah, but it just keeps changing key, and normally, like you do, like you you you, you, know, you do a five one. Like there are tricks for changing key, like like. Like you can, you can find ways of going. You can find ways of using five, 251 two, five, changes to change key. There's a lot of tricks for using a key change. But his trick is to simply just I'm changing key now, and the way I'm doing it is by mentally willing that this exact same chord progression. That leads to the one thing being the key just does lead also to the other thing being the key.
1: Because of the context I'm putting it in, what I'm leading up to it with and then what I'm following it with and what I'm doing with my voice is what's changing it. It's almost like a force of will.
2: It is. And so then when you're playing it, you you have to remember where the home key is. Or you won't lead into from one into the other. You have to make a mental switch, which of course fits both into the theme of the song, which is mind games, which sure. is, which, which is that kind of approach toward altering the, 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 the way we relate to the universe is something we play is, 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 it, it has to start inside our brains. But also, um, uh, but also that like, you know, like, like the whole war is over if you want it is, Mm -hmm. is like this idea that, that some of these things are mental states more than they are they're not states of in, they're not necessi- like we need to change our mental state in in order to the, a, a, then collectively change the reality of the world if that makes sense and yeah. then he does it in the song
0: right like he
2: does a mind game and he does a thing where it's like and now this exact same chord progression leads to the key of G right or this this chord progression leads to the key of C yeah for, for no other reason than I have decided that that's what it is.
1: Sugar Daddy is a bit of a more straight ahead thing. But of course, what's the lyric about? The lyric is about as far away from a regular hoedown number as you can get. Right. And I was curious also about your writing style, how you set about writing these. I feel like there was, and I could be completely wrong, but I feel like there was a, a system that you did you know how some people say oh well usually the music comes first or oh yeah a lot of times the lyric comes first i feel like with this you kind of had a blob of stuff and then you would hack your way through it
2: that that sounds about right i mean sometimes i'll have a piece of music and i really need to set lyrics to it or, or i have li- but but usually it's like there appears a lyric music blob thing and they both need to be formed. And then one might get ahead of the other, but yeah, they, they kind of like, they show up as a, as a blob.
1: And then it's about sculpting it from there and then finding the other passages, et cetera.
2: And you have to know where you're going, which is like another thing why, like, you know, for, for better or for worse, like I've thrown my lot as a songwriter into the theater world where like, You know, there were two paths for me that were opened up to me other than simply forming a band and going out and doing shit. And one of them was writing for theater where you're not only dependent on the show actually succeeding, but where the song ends up is a lot determined by the book writer and by what people, like when I left the Clueless, no, the the Romy and Michelle project, like when it finally just like I mean, that was causing me so – I had to see a shrink. I started seeing the shrink before I parted ways with that group of people. Yeah. Um, And the only reason that – they offered me a wonderful severance because so much of the story for the adaptation of that thing into a – not movie, but into a – I made up. And I kind of made it up spur the moment at a breakfast with all of the producers. Mm -hmm. So they all heard me saying it. Yeah. And so they were kind of stuck with like, if we get rid of him, he kind of thought of all of these things that are now basically how (laughs) the story goes. So, So, but like, I had written what I thought was just like a spectacular opening number. Which... I just thought was like so for me, the opening number, the for me the, the the opening was um was a fight song by a cheerleading squad. And it was part go-go's, part beastie boys. And and that's what it was. And like I just imagined the show opening with a cheerleading squad doing this song, but with the go-go's behind them. It's like yeah. Kind of, that was the that was the concept in my head, and always one of my favorite songs. It literally does not work outside of the context of <laughs> of the show. Although my manager's always like, "That is one of my favorite songs you've ever written. I love that song. I love that song. I love that song." We are the Scorpions. That's some of my best rhymes, like really killer fucking rhymes. And it had this very sort of like Ray Davies kind of chorus to it. And but then like Beastie Boys-ish rhymes Mm -hmm. and and a go-go's verse. It was just it was a melange of things, right? And, And 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 really loved it. And um um but you had to have the cheer squad. And they wanted me to come up with a different opening number. And they just kept on saying over and over again. Um I don't know if you've ever heard the song Oh My God, You Guys from Legally Blonde, but if you could write something like that, that does what like that song does, but not write like that song because we don't want you to sound like that song. But if you could do something that's like that song, that does what that song does, maybe you should give a listen to that song, but please don't sound like that song over and over again. And then I heard the song and I was like, you want me to sound like this? Like, that's just not like... I don't sound like, that's just not what I sound like. It's not what I do. Yeah. And they'd call me up like once a week saying, did you come up with a song? Have you listened to, uh, 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 have you listened to Oh My God, You guys? Which, of course, we don't want you to sound like that because we don't, we really don't want that song. But really, you should take, we should do something that feels like that song. But, and I just like, and I was literally like, I've been on clonopin ever since. And, um, and that was 2008. Yeah, well, and, I can I can imagine. Um, yeah, the stress. It, wa- it wasn't just them. It was the it was the it was the woman I was collaborating with who who caused so much anxiety in my life that I did have to see a shrink. But so the thing ended badly. But I end up with songs from that show that are like, uh, this is really great. Like if there had been a show that opened with this, that would have been awesome.
1: Now, with but songs like didn't. that. Are those bound up legally? Can they not be played in, in uh, another forum or can they not be displayed in like a Night of Stephen Trask works or something like they that?
2: Could, they, 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 they could be. Because
1: I think that would be interesting. I think, you know, Joe's Pub, something like that, would be a fantastic showcase for that kind of stuff, particularly for people like me who are tremendous fans of your stuff and would like to hear other other works of yours.
2: You know, and we did, the, I, you know, and I and I kind of thought like, actually thought This Ain't No Disco was going to open up a lot of avenues for like bringing out that kind of stuff. And frankly, theater critics just didn't get what we were doing.
1: Now, let's and talk about This like, Ain't No Disco uh, a little bit. And I have a couple other uh, Hedwig questions for the movie club. But uh, for this, This Ain't No Disco might not be as familiar to others because it didn't. Uh, well, there is an album coming out, right?
2: there is an album of other people doing songs from the saint no disco although the half-assed way that the record was made made it so that like at least 3 of the songs that should absolutely have been on any version of this record simply weren't recorded so uh, so i don't even want to begin to talk about that but uh there's a lot of great stuff and i, I like the opening song is this mix of like it's based on a on it's based on um on language from um it, it's called a dance floor's waiting and the and the 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 the, the music is sort of um i'm going to sound really pretentious but the music is very brechtian and uh no no I'm sorry much more pretentious than that the music is very Benjamin Britten. It's a very Benjamin Britten kind of piece of music. Yeah. And um, and it's a choral piece, and it works as a hymn, and the title is a play on the title of a hymn called A Heaven is Waiting, except that instead of people waiting to get into heaven, they're waiting to get into the dance club. And a lot of the descriptions of what happens in – the dance club and who you will find there and the way the world is worked out are all adaptations of passages from like dozens of hymns about getting into heaven and what you would find there and who was there and the different like uh hierarchy of, of angels and archangels and, and, and cherubs and, and, sa- and, and, and whatever. And like, and so we're writing a song from that perspective that then was simultaneously that, that then introduced this both sort of raunchy naughtiness and like an almost like Mel Brooks and, and, uh, uh Mel Brooks Monty Python like silliness.
1: Okay, like sure.
2: Yeah. Pure 100% silliness. Yeah. And the silly part of it, they would say, these lyrics are just stupid. It's just stupid. And I'm like, but I know it wasn't stupid because I remember playing it for, like, smart people. And they would just crack up. And you're just, like, cracking up in the room because it's silly. And it's, like, right. allowing yourself to be, like, fucking silly yeah, in the midst of non-silliness.
0: right.
1: Right. Do you find that that's a, a common problem with theater critics? That it, it's very much a binary, well, this is supposed to be a this thing. And it it felt more like kind of like a that thing for a bit. And so therefore, I don't like it.
2: You know, I think in general, like, a lo- like and, 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 and I think that the world is changing. But there's an old school theater guard, theater critic guard that's just like, you know what, like, they're not really cultured to the world in general <laughs> sure they might think, they might think they are but they're just not yeah like and you know one of them i upon his retirement from the new york times i kind of like i did a review of him as a critic <laughs> um which he which apparently got in his head because in his exit interview he talked about my, he talked about things that I talked about in my review of him. Um And it had really, and like, people are like, wow, you are living in his head rent-free. Like, it was kind of like, just really got to him. Um I'm sure there was other but I feel like
1: uh, theater composers and uh, book writers who very much enjoyed it. I just have a feeling.
2: Feeling, yeah. And I just, you know, it was just like, I know a lot of, cri- I respect the art of criticism. And my husband is a literary critic. Like, that's what he does. Like, I don't mean he's a book reviewer. I mean, he's a literary critic. Yeah. And all of our friends here in Kentucky are a lot of our friends. Everyone in his English department, if they're, if they're not creative writers, they're literary critics. And we have, and, and, and so my life is populated by either academic critics or by like you know i've just like lots of friends who are music critics and, and and film critics and art critics and 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 film and tv critics any one of whom i would be happy to walk through any major museum with and shut up and listen to them talk right but i get the feeling with Certain theater critics, like this person who retired last year, who I write a review of, I don't care to hear their thoughts about anything. Sure. You know, does that make sense? Like like they, they live in this very circumcised, circumcised – <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. What's the word I'm looking for? I know it's not circumcised. Um, whatever. They, they live in their little bubble. Their opinions, especially about musical theater, aren't – and, well, I mean, obviously he doesn't render opinions about musical theater anymore because he's retired, um, which is good because he mostly showed up drunk. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like not not, not worth it, not worth it, you know.
1: The paper they're printed on basically
2: yeah i was like but i was like oh nobody prints that shit anymore well, that's so that's true I really know if it so like you know not worth a rat's ass it's just like it's not it's like it's not um it's meaningless crap like they just don't they don't know how to and they don't know how to navigate, navigate. they don't know how to net na- they, they like he was a person that doesn't know how to net na- didn't know how to navigate the the like changing in theater aesthetic and the and the and the review proof movie ba- uh, theater project based on a film franchise or a book franchise like he didn't know how to respond to that like how do right. i do i just become extra extra mean to try and make a show that i don't like clothes even though i'm pretty sure i can't or do I find a way of praising a thing that I don't like, just in case it's a hit, so that yeah. my name can be on the mark? And you can you can like read the reviews and watch that thought process going through this person's head. And you're just like, you know, because I know bef- leading up to the opening of this ain't no disco, I just read this person's reviews, and I was like, I cannot find a good, uh, like just to know like what's the expectation here? Like, yeah, I was like wow, I can't find a guiding philosophy, right? When John Perellis was reviewing, you didn't always get it right, but you knew who the fuck he was.
1: Or like with Roger Ebert, who I disagree with on a lot of titles, a lot of them. And I love on movie clubs pulling his old reviews, especially the ones from like 80 to 83, where I think he's completely out of his brain. But at least I know that he's operating on the same precepts generally. It's like, that's how he views the world. And so therefore, these are the things he's going to see. And most of the time, if something's a silly bit of fluff, he's going to review it according to those terms, you know, on those terms, rather, uh, when there is just sometimes stuff is hated and you don't know why, or something is giving an overly glowing review and you don't know why. I, I it, The other aspect is, uh, I remember seeing an old Dick Cavett show where they had the author of Love Story on. His name, I unfortunately can't remember, but they Kirk also, had, what's that?
2: Eric Siegel?
1: Uh, Yes, that's right. Thank you. And also on the panel was John Simon, the New York Times literary critic, who was just a Uh a miserable, miserable man. And there was a third person on the panel who then was trying to talk. It was an actor, but who was trying to talk to uh, Simon saying, yeah, but like, doesn't there have any value or isn't there any inherent value in this that it spoke to so many people? And he just absolutely refused to acknowledge that. I mean, I think that there's lots of popular entertainments that don't do anything for me, but I'm like, that's cool. Like that's a thing people like, and it seems to do something for them.
2: I don't know. All I know is that, is that, is that I, that, that, that there's some things that I wanted to embrace in this ain't no disco. One of them was silliness. One of them was teen melodrama because it was about kids and like, Like, you know, in many ways, like rock songs are little melodramas.
0: Yeah, sure. And
1: And in the milieu that you're talking about, too, you're talking about the club life.
2: Yeah, and I wanted to embrace, like, teen-oriented melodrama. And, like, they're not having it, and they don't get it. And I can either write to their tastes or just, like, put out You know, and so like, it's just so, that was such a weird one where people are like, oh my God, these songs are fucking amazing. These songs are fucking amazing. And then you read in the Times, these songs are dumb. You're
1: like, what? And and how, how are you backing that up? You know?
2: Simply by saying it.
1: Yeah. Another project I wanted to ask you about, the purported Hedwig sequel, which then became John's podcast.
2: We were never really able to basically get on the same schedule. I was always working on a thing, and John, it was like the thing John wanted to work on. Sure. And I was like, my plate is full for like two or three years. And John kept thinking that if he booked something, I would just write for it. I would just make a song happen, and frankly, like that would work if I had not, if I was just sitting at home watching TV. I'd be like, eh, I'll go write that fucking song." But I was literally like, he booked us at the Provincetown Theater Festival, and I had to fly in. From the West Coast to be there. Uh huh. And I was there through the weekend. On Monday, after the festival, I flew to San Francisco to drive up to the George Lucas Ranch, where Lucas Sound Ranch, where they had these film scoring facilities. And it was like day one of recording an orchestra. And, and, and by the way, it was a film score that I was basically funding on my own because there was no budget for it. So oh, it okay.
0: like, yeah.
2: I, I lost like $20,000 making this score. In addition to that, I took my entire fee, including what ended up going to being commissions in putting it into the budget. And then another like 20 grand at least to pay for the score. And we're going in, but I'm in Provincetown for this reading and I was also my next movie was so lined up that when I wasn't doing the stuff for the, for with the festival, I was in my hotel room watching a rough assembly of my next movie. Right. Which I spotted on the phone. We all watched it together
1: For those who don't know, spotting is when you're basically putting in the moments where the music's going to be in in the final version.
2: Yeah, and what it's going to accomplish. Like I'm imagining a cue that starts here and goes to here and it accomplishes these moods and ties these things together and picks up on this motion and this emotion and amplifies it. And then this theme that gets established gets picked up here and you go through every single scene of the movie. It can take like five hours, six hours. And I will prepare for days for a spotting session. And I had my spotting session for my next film. It was so overlapped in the hotel room in Provincetown. (laughs) But John, that was his main project. But for me, like, I literally just, I could not find, like, I was like, I'm booked.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: I just don't have, and we just could never make our schedules work. And he really wanted it to happen, and I really wanted it to happen, um, but we couldn't. And he lost patience waiting for me, and I got that, and I was like, you know, I didn't like things like having to go in front of an audience in Provincetown, not having written any songs. Sure, but like, yeah, a, like I just didn't know what I was going to write. I literally performed three cues from the movie I was about to record. I just sat down on the piano. I was like, I didn't have time to write stuff for this, but this is the film score I'm about to record. And I just played other stuff that I was working on. Yeah, like it was li- like that's what I did, and and it was just. um uh, like it's not like I wasn't working, I was working around the clock.
0: Yeah. Just of course. not on
2: the thing, the same thing that John was working around the clock on. And it just kind of reached a head where he was ready to move on. And by that time I was just like tired of feeling like I was being put into situations like the situation in Provincetown, where I was doing everything I could to make it happen, but I was actually like my whole livelihood was dependent on these two other things. And we just couldn't line it up.
1: Yeah. And also, from what I gather, your mode of writing songs for particularly a Hedwig project is that with Midnight Radio, for instance, to use as an example, since you had to write that in short order, it was what, like a 12 to 24 hour period of complete immersion.
2: About 72 hours, but yeah.
1: So in order to get into the headspace to write for that, you really can't be having a million things going on at once. You need the full immersion.
2: Well, this was the other thing we could never quite come to terms on what the songs were. Was another actual difficulty for us. Was like John had a lot of dummy lyrics. This song is about this, and I would be like, song title. The song's about this, and then some dummy lyrics. I'm like, I was like, I I was like my process requires all of this to be removed so that I can feel where the songs go and what they should be about. Sure. Just because, like, I know when I feel there should be a song and then I would propose a song and then I'm probably proposing a song that's in my wheelhouse. And then I guess there's some miscommunication and John sent me a version that had the lyrics already removed, but still had the song placements with the titles and what the songs were about. And it was like, I didn't want to write a song about any of the things that John wanted me to write songs about. If that makes sense. Like yeah. they just, his, his. it's not only our schedules diverged, but our interests had diverged. I wasn't interested in a Christian cosmology or, or different versions of, of an afterlife in an astral space or what, like, just, like, it just wasn't a thing that I cared about. Sure. And he really did care about it. Right. And, I, 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 and we ultimately had to just be like, okay, I'll take this thing and I'll make it not have Hedwig in it and I'll make it into a different thing and we went our separate ways because it was just but it wasn't like a fight
0: sure yeah it was yeah, just yeah
2: it was just our our lives were in different places and on different schedules and our areas of interest were so divergent that i could see the value in the thing that he was talking about but i couldn't ima- a lot i couldn't imagine myself writing a, a lot of the songs that were being suggested
1: yeah, and those are two different things. You know, they're two different things. And the other thing is really, yeah, on one hand you can say it's sad that the Hedwig sequel never happened, but on the other hand, isn't it a blessing uh that you two were able to be together when you did Hedwig for the protracted amount of time, which is very rare when you think about it. There's not much not many times in people's lives where they're able to workshop on something and continually hone and then move it to the next level and then hone and then move it to the next level you know and then make the film of it and and all of that so really it's we're all fortunate that you were able to do all of that so the fact that we didn't get Hedwig sequel hey look we still have you guys doing stuff and we still have you guys doing the original
0: love shows
2: we did this great new song we wrote this song called Nation of One, and um, and it was like a perfect John and Stephen collaboration. Probably because, you know, he asked me to do something. And my first question to him is like, well, what mood don't you have on the album that you like, something you'd really wish? And he sent me two really obscure songs. Mm-hmm. And actually, one was not obscure. One of the songs was Age of Consent by New Order and the other song was by a band called deck chairs overboard you can't find their music it's only like youtube videos i won't even get into the recording process with like the tits of clay who are the Hedwig band but it was a very involved imitation were all in the room together making up this arrangement. But of course we weren't because it was COVID. Yeah. So there were a lot of like Zoom and FaceTime jam sessions and a lot of back and forth. Yeah. Where a part would change and then it'd send it to someone and say, hey, can you change your part so it goes with this? And then, oh, can you change your and it was like back and forth. So it took forever. Um but with, like with John and me, so like I made myself a playlist of like 20 songs and I just kind of, I just kind of listened. the 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 commonality with this, I, I found certain commonalities with with the stuff that John was looking for, and so I just kind of was like, "Let me listen to a whole bunch of things that do that, and or feel like they belong together." So I, so, th- so I'm not ripping anything off. And I'm still delivering him something that feels to him like the thing he wanted, right? Yeah. Then we just started this back and forth where I described, like when I sent him the music, I was like, well, and this is the structure. And when you have this kind of structure, the melody should develop like this. And, you know, like, uh, and... um. This section comes in here, and I think it's really good for like a counting section or something like that. And and then he would come back and be like, he actually came back with a draft that didn't have a chorus, and I was like, oh, this needs a strong chorus. He's like, where? And I was like, no, this is the chorus, and I actually wrote the chorus uh, based on like, I mean, he already called it Nation of One, so. But I was like, it needs a strong chorus, and he wanted to write a strong chorus, and I just sat down, just jammed out a chorus, and sent it to him, and he really liked it, so that became the chorus, and then. And then he was like, can we repeat this section but not do this section? And, and so he was – we just kept on very easily suggesting to each other in ways that got into each other's process.
0: Yeah, right. But
2: But we're very – we're so used to talking to each other like that that I think we both knew what to say to each other and we were both willing to hear it. And so we got good stuff out of each other. And so it sounds like, I mean, the lyrics actually sound like my lyrics almost, and they're not. Um, And we just, you know, and a lot of people ask me, did you write those lyrics? Like, I didn't. They said, they sound like your style. I said, I know. But like,
1: (laughs) we were just, we were so. On the same wavelength, I think.
2: On the same wavelength and so able to tell each other what we were looking for and what the other person might change. And yeah. even though we were sometimes on the opposite sides of the the world, that we just have this thing about us that allows us to do that with each other, that probably somebody writing with John for the first time doesn't know how to do that.
1: Well, and also I think that the two of you have a thing that you'll always have. So whether or not that other thing didn't work out schedule wise, there could be something else in the future. I think the two of you have uh, yeah. a very special alchemical bond that's always there
2: it was there before Hedwig I mean that was the that was what made us write Hedwig together was and and I've often said with Hedwig like it was in a lot of ways it came out of like the John and Stephen conversation hour like you know like a lot of what happened in the songs or in the story we would just sit and talk about stuff for hours and then somehow the things that we were talking about ended up becoming thematic elements of our own work because we were on the same wavelength and all these years later, i still feel like, yeah, we kind of, we, we still are.
1: And I want to thank you for a fabulous chat. I'm looking forward to doing the other chat and I'll let you know when we need to fill in other things on that one. And I love you, Stephen, and I'm looking forward to seeing you in person soon.
2: Love you too, Craig. Yeah, that'd be awesome.
1: It would be great.
2: And people should check out, um, um, Nation of One, go buy it on Bandcamp because all the money goes to support really wonderful um, progressive charitable initiatives. And it's not that expensive.
1: And it's well worth it.
2: Get it. Age
0: New age socialism